Thank you, Murray. Good morning, everybody. He is risen. That's right. He is risen. Uh, I want to say a special shout out to Ramesh and Elsie. Thank you for stealing my sermon. Uh, I have nothing more to add. Ditto. It is finished. Um, well, welcome. So glad, so glad you're here. So glad we can get together and celebrate on this Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection Life, everybody. It's phenomenal. Uh, this morning, I would like to preach to you a little bit of an uh, untraditional uh, Easter message. Uh, the sermon, my sermon title today is Three Weddings and a Funeral. All right? Three Weddings and a Funeral. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John 2. John 2. Turn in your Bibles. Open it up. And um, I love weddings. We're in springtime. We're in the season of weddings. And I think I love weddings because weddings remind me of, well, they don't remind me. They are marriage. <laughs> and, and marriage is from God. Marriage has been given by God to us. Marriage originated with God. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is holy. Marriage isn't a human invention. Marriage isn't a human a social construct. God gave marriage to humanity. And I love it because at the first wedding, God presided. God, God joined Adam and Eve together. And he, uh, he put Adam to sleep, took a rib out of his side, formed Eve, fashioned Eve, and then brought her to Adam. And women, I just have to let you know this, that if man is dust refined, women is dust double refined. And it was, Sir, it was Sir Matthew Henry who said this. He said that woman was taken out of man's side. She wasn't taken out of his feet to be under him. She wasn't taken out of his head to be over him. But she was taken out of his side so that she could be close to his heart. So that he could bring her under his arm and uh, care for her. And that is the unity that, that we see that God intended for marriage. And in fact, when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he breaks into poetry. He has no words to describe. And so he breaks into song and he says, at last, at last, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Someone who is like me and yet unlike me at the same time, at last. My deepest prayers, my deepest longings have been answered. And God blesses them. And it is sacred and they're together and it's holy. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. A few verses later, they are uh, at odds with each other. They are, um, where there was unity, there was disunity. Where there was togetherness, they're now fractured, like Elsie um, prophesied about. And for the rest of the story now, we are left wondering, what is God going to do? Well, I have good news for you, everybody. It's Jesus. And Jesus shows up. And uh, he shows up in God in human flesh. It's incredible. And this is what happens in John chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. On the third day, everyone say third day. Third day. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, I always snicker when I read this, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So we read this, and we go, wow, isn't that, isn't that amazing? I don't think it's that amazing. In fact, I have questions when I look at this. And I have two major questions. And the first is this. It says in verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Why would Jesus be invited to a wedding? I'm serious. You may think I'm joking, but why would Jesus be invited to a wedding? Seriously, why would you invite a religious leader to your joyful celebration? <laughs> See, when I was younger, I, I had this bracelet that I used to wear. And it had four letters on it, WWJD, which stood for, what would Jesus do? That bracelet was the most unhelpful thing I've ever worn. Because I would look at it, and I would start asking the most ridiculous questions. What would Jesus do? Where would Jesus sit? Would he sit here or would he sit here? What would Jesus eat? Would he be eating what I'm eating? Which way would Jesus walk home? I sometimes wonder if Jesus wore a bracelet, would it say WWID? What would I do? I, I don't know. Um, and so this is, this is the picture of Jesus that I have. And this is the picture some of us have of Jesus. So why would we invite that Jesus to a wedding? Wouldn't he come and kill the joy and the celebration? Like, wouldn't Jesus show up and be like, I am here, everybody. Thank you. You have drunk more than enough. Please stop. You are dancing a little too closely. Please leave some room for the Holy Spirit. You need to stop dancing so much. You need to stop rejoicing. Because I am Jesus, and I am here. And I have this picture that he would just come in and kill joy. And the second question I have when I read this is why would this be Jesus' first miracle? The first miracle is an inaugural miracle. The first miracle sets up the rest of his ministry. The whenever you look at other religious texts, you look at the uh, founder, the leader of the religion, and their first address is full. It's like this bite-sized portion, but it's accurate. It's clear what they're saying, where they're inviting you to, where they're trying to take you. And there's no urgency here. No one's dying. <laughs> no one's starving. It's not like nations are at war with each other. There's nothing that seems to be urgent that is happening within here. All it seems to be is that it is a catering disaster. Big deal. Why do we need the Son of God to come in and help us with catering? 
there's only two conclusions I can make. A former professor at Duke University has observed this, and he has said, uh, he, he was a professor of literature and English, and he said the only conclusion that you can draw is that this is history. This is not fable, this is not myth, this is not fiction, because if you were making something up, you would never, ever, ever put this as Jesus' first miracle. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And the second thing that I conclude is this, that just maybe, maybe the Jesus that you know and I think we know is completely different than we've been taught. Maybe the Jesus that I have in my mind actually doesn't come to kill joy, but to fulfill it. Maybe Jesus is just so much better and so much greater and so much more powerful than I've ever considered or thought. I have reduced him to a list of do's and don'ts instead of engaging with the person that he is. That's what I have to conclude. Because as I look at the rest of this passage, I realize how absolutely transformative it is. It changes everything. And it changes everything because of what he says and what he does. See, the first thing we notice is that Mary comes to him. Uh, they're out of wine. Now, this would have been a serious social faux pas. This would have been shameful to the groom and his family. And Mary sees this, and she goes to Jesus, and she goes, Jesus, we need help. And Jesus, almost as if he's been startled, responds to her with, woman? <laughs> you don't understand this. For those of you with moms, try this. Next time your mom asks you to do something, Respond with this, woman, and let me know how it goes for you, all right? I have never called my mother woman because I value my life, and I value my behind, and I like to enjoy sitting down on a behind that doesn't smart. Jesus responds with woman. What does this have to do with me? And we're going to come back to that. But Mary says, oh no, something's going to happen. Because like Mary was talking about, faith is pulling into today what is reserved for tomorrow. And she goes to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. Listen to him. Obey him. And so Jesus tells the servants, okay, these six stone jars, fill them up with water. That is not an easy task because they did not have indoor plumbing. They did not have running water. And so Jesus has just asked them to draw between 120 to 180 gallons of water by hand. And if you are a servant, guess what happens? Nothing. It says here that they fill the jars to the brim. Do you know why they fill them to the brim? Because nothing happened. They were going and they were picking up water and going over and dumping it in and going and getting more water and dumping it in. And bit by bit by bit by bit, the jars are getting more and more full. And yet nothing is happening. And sometimes it seems like what God has asked us to do doesn't affect anything. Some of you have been obedient to him. You've been doing what he's put in front of you, and it seems like nothing is happening. 
But I want to encourage you to hold on and to do it with all your might because he will take it and he will use it. And in one moment, he can turn it. Because what happens, come on, what happens is that the jars are filled to the brim. And then Jesus says, take it to the master of the banquet. And the servant takes it. And I believe as he took it, it turned into wine. And the master of the banquet tastes it. And he goes, oh, this is the sublime wine. This is the wine we should have started with. It feels like little angels are dancing on my taste buds. And he calls the groom and his family over. And he goes, most people, they serve the best wine. But you have saved the best wine till now. And you've got to realize this, that Jesus doesn't even get credit for this miracle. The groom and his family get the credit. The master of the banquet is going, guys, you did so good. And they're like, why, yes, yes, we did. We are amazing. We are fantastic. Thank you so much. Please tell us more. That's that's absolutely what goes on. And, And all scripture says is that he did this and his disciples believed in him. So there must be something more, and it's this. The jars, it says, were filled. There were the jars that they used for religious washing, ceremonial washing. And what that was, was the Jews were expected to wash every day, multiple times a day, as a reminder of their uncleanness. As a reminder that they are wrong. As a reminder that they have to do something to get into God's presence. As a reminder that God really doesn't want to be near them. As a reminder that they are wrong. It's all the rituals and all the rules that would lead them to being accepted. And you may think, oh, well, that was for a different time, John. That was for religious leaders. We live in the modern day, the modern age, 2019. Well, I just want to, sorry to shatter your dreams. But in our culture and in our age, there is absolutely a right way and a wrong way to live. And... People sometimes are very opinionated about what is right and what is wrong. And some people will be quick to tell you, do this, do this, think like this, don't do this, don't do that. And without realizing it, you too have felt the pressure of living rightly. And what Jesus is saying is those very things that constantly remind you of your failures... Those very things that constantly remind you of what you need to do to live up to. I have come to turn into joy for you. The rest of my life, the rest of my ministry now is about taking those things and bringing you joy out of them. And bringing the fulfillment of joy to you. So really what he's doing is he's setting up the rest of his ministry and also the invitation for you and for me to step into. It's joy, and, and First Peter says this, that is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy that we can't describe, joy that we can't contain, joy that overflows. It begins to bubble up within us, it begins to overflow upon us, and we don't know why, but all of a sudden, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of triumph, we're going, God, you're so good, and I'm so joyful, I'm so fulfilled in you and satisfied in you. Because it was St. Irenaeus of Lyon who said that the glory of God is man fully alive in him. 
And God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And that is the joy that Jesus came to bring us into. So that's the picture. But why does Jesus appear to brush Mary off? Why does he appear to respond harshly to her? And I think it's this. I think that he was startled. I think he was deep in thought. I love going to weddings. I love being at weddings. I love seeing the dancing and the partying and the rejoicing over this union. And what I really struggled with was going to weddings as a single man. It's just awkward sometimes. You're awkwardly checking out all the single ladies. They're awkwardly checking out the single men. You get called onto the dance floor for the garter toss, which is just gross. Why do you want to catch a garter? I don't know. The women get called up for the bouquet toss. And while you're there, you're so happy, thrilled for your friends. You rejoice with them. And yet, these thoughts come to you. This pang of, is it ever going to be my turn? Is it, is it ever going to be my time? Am I ever going to be standing up there? And if so, who am I going to be standing up there with? What's my wedding going to be like? What colors will I have? Where will I get married? What will I serve? As a side note, Andrea and I, Andrea is from a Dutch background. I'm from, I'm from Pakistan originally. And we just planned our wedding around the feast, around the food. And when I, when I would be at those weddings, I'd be going, oh, my gosh, what, what are we going to serve? What are we going to eat? How are we going to do this? And it would make me wonder, will my time ever come? If you can relate, can you just say amen? amen. So, thank you. I'm not alone. <laughs> and I think that's what's happening to Jesus. I think he's in the midst of joy. He's in the midst of celebration. He's in the midst of union that he created. He created marriage. He blessed marriage. He's the one who brought them together. And he's there going, I wonder when it's going to be my turn. I wonder what my wedding day is going to be like. I wonder what my bride is going to look like. I wonder when it's going to happen. And he says this because I think he's startled. He says, woman. But then he seems to say something that almost seems like a non sequitur. He, sees my, he says, my hour has not yet come. And if you read the rest of the book of John, every time Jesus starts talking about my hour, my hour, what he's talking about is the hour of his death. He's talking about his coming death by crucifixion. And he is there, surrounded by joyful rejoicing, and yet he's thinking, not just of his wedding, but of the cost it's going to cost him to get there. He is thinking of the pain and the suffering that's going to require of him. And you could almost say this, as another preacher so wisely pointed out, that Jesus sits in the middle of joy, sipping from the cup of sorrow. Sipping from the cup of the coming sorrow. Because he is there thinking and considering that. 
Because his life, his life ended in death. He lived the rest of his life, and he lived perfectly and completely. And even right before his death, he says this in John 14. He's speaking to his disciples, and he's thinking about his wedding. And he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Take you to myself, everybody. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Even as he's, even as he's facing down the cross... He is using this language, and this language in that day was bridegroom language. In that day, tradition is that when the groom would propose, the bride would say, yes, there would be rejoicing. But then the groom would say, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come back to take you there. And then the the groom would take off, and he would go and begin working on the house where they were going to live. And then he would come back with much fanfare, much delight, and much rejoicing, and loud shouts. And he would take his bride into the home that he had built. And this is on Jesus' mind as he's facing the cross. And he is then taken, tried, and crucified, executed by being crucified. And he died. And can you imagine if you're his followers, there's all this talk about the, a, a wedding. There's all this talk about what Jesus is going to do. He's going to restore us. He's going to uh, bring the kingdom. He's going to kick these Romans out. He's going to restore our lands. He's going to, the coming of the kingdom of God is coming with him. And then all of a sudden, all that hope is gone in a moment. All of a sudden, all that vision swallowed up. And it would be a very sad and dour day when Jesus died. At his funeral. But I have good news for you because the funeral of Jesus actually never happened. Because before they could even plan it, he destroyed their plans by being raised from the dead. And he's the only one I know who can put the fun back into funeral. Come on, because in that moment, death was swallowed up by life. Sickness was swallowed up by health, and sin was swallowed up by grace. And he came to proclaim that and say that, that still his mission to bring us unending joy, to bring us into the Father, to be united with us forever, is still on. And you and I are now invited into that life. You and I are invited into being the spouse of Jesus. He doesn't just, guys, he doesn't just offer us friendship. He offers us covenant and marriage. And he points forward to that day at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will stand before him pure and spotless and holy. And the things that happened before that caused pain and hurt and shame, it will seem like a shadow. It will seem like a shadow because he passed through the door of death and he came through the door of life. And now the invitation is for you and I.
to join him. I've been rereading Lord of the Rings. I love it. I like, I like taking a break from nonfiction and reading fiction every so often. It gives my mind and my brain a chance to catch up to what I've been thinking and processing about. And if you haven't read Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, I'm so sorry. I'm going to do some spoilers for you right now, all right? Um, but I was reading Lord of the Rings, and I, read, I, I was reading near the end, and Frodo had completed his quest. He had taken the one ring, and he had tossed it into the fires of Mount Doom. And then him and Sam, and they, they see the eagles, and then they pass out. And he awakes, I think it's about 14 days later, and he thinks that their wizened old leader had passed away, Gandalf. And he wakes up, and he sees Gandalf's face hovering over him. And he goes, Gandalf, Gandalf, is it, is it you? You're alive? Is every bad thing going to come undone? Is every bad thing going to come undone? Because that is the hope to which Jesus has called us. That at the wedding day of the Lamb, as we sit with him, and as we dine, and as we eat, and as we drink, that the bad things will be like a shadow that pass over us. Timothy Keller said this, he says this, that the bad things will come undone. The good things of this life the things that we enjoy, the marriage and the laughter and the joy that, that is here, the good things can never be lost. But the best things are yet to come. The best things are yet to come. And that is the hope of resurrection. That is the hope of Easter. That it didn't end with death. It didn't end with the grave. It didn't end with burial. But it, but it begins with resurrection. It begins with life triumphing over death. It begins with his power and his might and his love coming into us and now beginning to make us into his bride. And I can think of no better news this morning than that Jesus is coming back. Because if it's true, if it's true that he rose from the dead, and it absolutely is, again, this is not myth. This is not fable. This is not fiction. This is not someone writing a story about what happened several hundred years ago. These are eyewitnesses recording what they saw and what they experienced and what, they, what they've stepped into. If this is fact, then that means that this changes everything. Because Jesus said, I am going to come back. And again, it's the language of the bridegroom. I go to prepare a place but I'm coming back for you. I'm coming back for you. And there will be a day when every tear gets wiped away. So how do we receive it? How do we walk in that? Because it sounds so big and so grand and so powerful, which it is, but how do we step into it? Well, I think there are two things we need to do. And the first thing is what Mary said. We're out. I'm out. Jesus, I'm out of wine. Jesus, I need your wine. Jesus, where I'm at hasn't worked. It has, I, it's brought me so far, but I feel so tired, so broken. It's just not working. I, I'm anxious. I'm afraid. I'm out. I'm out of wine. And I need your wine. 
See, you can't come to him saying, Jesus, I need a top up. You can't say, Jesus, I'm like 90% full, so could you just fill me up the rest of the way? Because if you do, you're treating him as a, as a teacher and not as Lord. If you do, you get to decide which of his words you live out. First thing to do is you have got, you've got to admit that you're out, you're empty, and you need him. Because the other thing is that it's this metaphor of wine that scripture uses. And, and you cannot get away from this all throughout the Bible. The Bible talks about God using experiential language, sensory language. And this is the most terrifying thing. Actually, this is why we're called Catch the Fire. I'm serious. You can't just see a fire. You can't just experience the warmth of the fire. You yourself have got to catch the fire, the living flame of God. You've got to experience him. You've got to encounter him. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say read and see. It doesn't say watch others and see. The Bible invites you to taste and see. And perhaps, just perhaps, if you have been like me and you have thought of God as this very serious do's and don'ts kind of God, it's because you haven't tasted yet. It's because you've simply read. But one taste will forever wreck you, will forever, forever change your life. You will never be the same. Because with one taste, you go, oh, wow. Oh, my gosh, wow. This is what I've been missing out on? Like the master of the ceremony? <laughs> oh, this is sublime. Because let me ask you this. How do you explain something to someone who doesn't have the sense for it? For example, say your friend is blind, right? And they come to you. And they say, um, John, what is the difference between red and blue? Is that, is that like the difference between honey and maple syrup? Wow, I've never thought of that. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, kind of? It, kind of? Like the honey is like red, the maple syrup is like blue? But I can't describe it to you. You just got it. Taste it. And I'm so sorry, I can't describe red and blue to you. You just have to see it. Some of us have seen, but we've not tasted. We've seen religion. We've seen others' lives touched. We've seen others' lives changed. Or we've seen people be angry, upset, condemning, whatever. And we have judged Jesus based on that. But we have not tasted. And the invitation is for us to taste because once you taste, your joy is fulfilled. Once you taste of his wine, once you taste of him, you are absolutely in heaven. And you're in heaven because Jesus sat in the midst of joy, drinking from the cup of the coming sorrow, so that we who sit in the midst of suffering and sorrow can drip drink from the cup of the coming joy. 
We can drink and receive his coming joy into our lives, everybody. We can say that I, I may be beaten down now. There may be things happening now. There may be, I may be struggling with this. There may be all this happening in the world. But my great hope is this, that Jesus, my bridegroom, is returning for me. And he is going to take me to himself. And there will be one day, one day, one glorious day when I stand before him spotless and blameless and free from any blemish. And we fall into each other's arms at the end of the age. And my joy will be fulfilled. And he offers us a taste of that right now. Not not 2,000 years from now. Not 500 years. Right now, we get to taste of that. We get to taste of the coming age. We get to taste of the coming joy. That is the revelation. That is the invitation from Jesus for you and for me. And there are some of you, as I've been speaking, you've realized that you are the people you have, you have maybe seen, but you have not tasted. And the invitation's gone out, but you haven't said yes yet. And I just, I just hear the Lord saying that there's someone listening to this, and death is not the end of your story. I don't know if you're at at death's door, or maybe someone watching online, I don't know, but I just hear God saying, death is not the end of your story, but my joy and my life shall be the end of your story. And that's the invitation for us. And if you have never prayed a prayer to receive Jesus into your heart and into your life, I would like to lead you in that right now. Or, maybe you have prayed a prayer, but you have just sat and watched and not tasted. I'd like to lead you in a prayer. In fact, I'd like to lead all of us in a prayer. Would that be all right? If we rededicate our lives, if we say yes to his story, yes to his invitation once again, I'd like to, I'd like to invite you, would you close your eyes for a minute? And would you pray this after me? Jesus Christ, I say yes to you this morning. I say yes to your invitation of joy. Would you forgive me for going my own way and trying to be pleasing in my own might? And Lord, I confess to you, I'm out. I'm out of wine. I need your wine. I need your joy. I need you in my life. Amen. And if you pray that prayer, For the first time, I would like to be the first one to welcome you into the family of God. Yeah, come on, that's incredible. Or, if you have prayed that prayer before, but this is your first time saying, Lord, I want to taste it. I want to welcome you into his family as well. And I'm going to invite you, if you've maybe prayed a a prayer to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior over the past few months. We're going to have baptisms next Sunday. We're going to publicly declare that we are in love with Jesus and he is in love with us. We're going to declare that we believe in him. We're We're going to declare that we are following him. And if you would like to partake in that or parents, your kids want to be baptized, I'm going to invite you to go ahead, fill out a connect card and write baptism on it, drop it in a drop box and our team will be in touch with you. 
Now, before we close, I did say that there were two metaphors. The first is to say that we're out. We're out of wine. The second way to receive it is to begin to realize that you are the bride. There's no other way around it. Guys, I'm sorry. You've just got to come to the realization that we are the bride of Christ. Ladies, if you have to deal with being the sons of God, guys, we have to deal with being the bride of Christ. But there's this one moment. See, what, when God calls us, he uses different metaphors to speak about us. And we learn something about who he is, but we also learn something about who we are. For example, when, God's, when um, God calls himself a father and we are his sons and daughters, well, he cares for us. He watches over us. He guides us. When God calls himself the shepherd and we are the sheep, he's saying that we need leading. We need guidance. We need, to, um, we need someone to call us. When God calls himself the head and we are the body, we know that we are joined to each other. We need each other, but we need to be joined to him. But there's this one metaphor that he uses, that he dares to use. And he calls himself the groom. It's phenomenal. And it's phenomenal because there's this one moment in every wedding. And it's the moment of expectation is full. Everyone is waiting. Everyone rises. The groomsmen and groom are waiting. The bridesmaids have, are waiting. And the bride comes walking. And when you look at her, you go, oh my gosh, she is ravishing. You say that for every bride. To be honest, it doesn't matter what she looks like in real life. But at the wedding, you go, wow. Because there's something about bridal garments and bridal adornments throughout cultures and throughout ages that when women put it on, they become stunning. And there's this moment in every wedding, everyone's dressed at their finest, and the bride begins to come down, and people's breath gets taken away. And I love looking at the groom's face during this time, because the groom sees no one else but her. The groom has eyes for no one else but her. And this is what God says about you and me, is he looks at us, and he goes, you are ravishing to me. You are beautiful to me, both now and at the end of the age when we are together as one. And it's his love and his sacrifice that makes us one, that makes us beautiful. And that's the invitation. It's not just that we would say that we're out, but we would become his bride. We would take the season to prepare ourselves to be made beautiful by his sacrifice. This picture of the groom, uh, the family receiving credit for everything Jesus did, that's exactly us. We get, he gives us everything. He gives us everything we need to beautify ourselves. And then he's so good that he gives us everything we need and then goes, wow, you're so gorgeous. Wow, I'm so taken with you. Wow, you are so lovely. And that, my friends, is what Easter is the beginning, the foretaste of. It's the foretaste of the coming day when we will stand before him, blameless, holy, spotless. And there's something inside of me that goes, I can think of no better way to contain this. I just need to bust out of my skin and yell and scream this. Because I don't just receive his joy. I don't just receive the wine of his joy. I then become the bartender. 
I then get to pour his wine out to my friends and to my family and to my coworkers. I get to show my, my, <laughs> my peers the love that God loves me with and loves them with. And so I've, in my heart, I feel like we need to rejoice. So I'm going to invite you. Would you stand with me? And we are going to bust out of our skins. We're going to do this. We're going to yell the praise and yell the glory and the goodness of God. I'm going to invite the band back up. And I'm going to invite you, actually, to come out of your seat and come up to the front. Because together, there's something that happens when his body and his church family together, oh, we begin to declare the praises and the goodness and the glory, and not just that, the wisdom of God, the wisdom that he has brought us into himself, the joy that we are filled with. And we're going to take a few minutes, and together we're going to raise our hands. You can dance, you can shout, you can lay down, I don't care, but we are going to declare together that death is not the end. That sin does not have the final answer. That redemption and grace has come and his name is Jesus. And the hope that he has called us to is that he is returning for a great and glorious spotless bride. Come on. (laughs) Come on, I'm going to invite you. Would you just raise your hands right now? Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we're so taken by you. Jesus, we're so overwhelmed with love for you. You fill our joy. You make our joy complete. Lord, you overwhelm us. You excite us. We're so ravished by you because you have captured our hearts. You have captured our gaze. You have captured our lives. We love you, Jesus, with all our hearts, with all our passion, with all our minds, with all our souls, with all our strength, with our bodies. All we can say is we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, that you have brought us back from the pit. And and now you have given us yourself and you're bringing us into you. God is the most incredible story, the most powerful story that we have ever known. And our hearts swell with love for you. Ah, Let your joy fill us. Let your joy fill us. Let your joy fill us. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, let your joy fill us. In the midst of triumph. Wow. Your joy fills us. Your joy fills us.